There is a man named David Brooks, whom I've enjoyed reading, two books that he wrote, especially Bobos in Paradise, and then uh, A Life on Living, A Principled Life, The Road to Character. And David Brooks writes for The Atlantic, The Wall Street Journal, The New York Times. Uh, As far as his faith, he calls himself a non-practicing Jew, but he's a very thoughtful and uh, good, good guy. But he wrote an article for the op-ed piece for the New York Times seven, eight years ago that received a lot of coverage and a lot of discussion in the culture at large, and it was entitled, The Summoned Life, S-U-M-M-O-N-E-D, Summoned Life. And he says, generally speaking, there are two ways to live life. He says there's what he called the, 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 the well-principled life or the well-planned uh, life, where you operate under a, a, some fixed truth and you plan your life based upon that. And he highlights a man that he calls a very thoughtful Christian, as an example. And then he says there is what he calls the summoned life, where you don't really see a plan, but you see life as something you experience, and you make the best decisions that you are able to make in a given circumstance. And he says this, he says, he says, a summoned life is a life that's unknowable, on an unknowable landscape to be explored, close quote, an unknowable landscape to be explored. And I would just say that um, I want to talk to you for the next three weeks about a well-planned life as we begin 2019 together. Uh, I'm going to call it living a life of intentionality. I believe that there is a living God who has spoken and he has given us himself in the person of Jesus Christ who is eternally God. And he lived a perfect life and died on the cross for our sins and rose victorious over death. And he ascended to the right hand of the Father and he's praying for us now. And one day he'll bring history to a close. And the Lord has given us his word, the apostolic truth, the prophets and the apostles. And so our well-planned life is under the scripture. He is king. I have a three-year-old grandson who's a delight. And uh, we FaceTime with him. He's in Washington State. And so the last few times we always try to catechize him, ask him questions. And and I I kept saying, now, now, Gideon, do you realize that Jesus is the king? No, Papa, he's a baby. No, he's really, he's king. He's he's eternal. No, no, Papa, he's a baby. And uh, so we're we're working on that, okay? But but, but a well-planned life, living under the lordship of Jesus Christ, who is eternally God, who is the king. So we live with intentionality. I'm talking to believers now because we know the big story and we know the path and we know the goal, which is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And Paul talked about people who lived a life that was a summoned life, or I'm going to call it a haphazard life. And these are gifted people. These are intelligent people, but he describes them in chapter 4 of Ephesians. In the next three weeks, we're going to be in Ephesians 4 and 5, taking a 30,000-foot run-by for these passages. But in this passage, the Apostle Paul says that there are some people, verse 28, they are darkened in their understanding alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. 
But this is not the way you learn Christ. Papalpa says there's a certain percentage of people that the, the, the more and more they close their heart to the things of God, they become more and more darkened and hardened and callous. And they're, they're really, he says, they come to a place of being beyond feeling. And he says, but that's not the way you learn Christ. You've got to learn Christ. And so I was reading the Wall Street Journal yesterday, and every week in the Wall Street Journal on the weekend edition, which is just wonderful, they have a, a page or maybe two pages of obituaries of well-known people. And they celebrate their life. You know, when you write an obituary, you write good stuff. You, 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 always, you, you highlight the good stuff, and you minimize the bad stuff, and don't even talk about it. So yesterday there was an obituary, and I read it and went, Wow. And I will tell you the name of the person because I don't want to speak ill of the dead. But this, this is her, her obituary. She died at age 97 last week. Um, and um, the, the background is this, that she was having an affair with a man who was not her husband. And in the midst of that five-year affair, the, the man to whom she was having an affair with had a wife who committed suicide. And if you read the stories, it was partly because she found out about the ongoing attitude of her husband toward their marriage. And she left her husband, who was a cardiologist, and they were married. They got married, and they stayed married for, for 23 years. They were married when she was 47. He was 64. But just this, one, this is her obituary. She died at age 97. Listen, she, she, she wrote to a friend when they were married just a year after the wife committed suicide and she left her husband. This is not a sudden nutty decision. This is an inevitable, inescapable conclusion to five years of four people's frustration, close quote. My husband was frustrated. I was frustrated. His wife was frustrated. She took her life and he was frustrated. And then she gave an interview to the New York Times in the year 2000. And she said, I, I was the kind of mother that I now regret. I did not spend sufficient time reading to them or playing with them, but I don't live with guilt because what you see is what you got. She goes on and says that my husband lived his whole life without children, and he was very happy without children. I've never been very maternal. There were too many other things I wanted to do. My life with him was what I wanted my life to be. And in other words, it's, uh, to me, that's a haphazard life. There's no path. It's just experiencing life as you go. That is not the way we live if we know Jesus. That's not the way we live because we have the, the Scripture. So, so we live a life of intentionality. Three points. Number one, a life of intentionality is not a matter of intellect, but is a matter of calling and focus. There are very, very bright people brilliant people that, that just experience life as they go and they don't, they don't believe there's, an, there, there's a divine God who watches over them, who's given them his words. So, so it's not a matter of intellect, it's a matter of calling and focus. That's what Paul says in verse 21 of chapter 4. This is not how you learned Christ. And he says in verse 23 that we must be people who, this is a present tense word, verse 23 says we must be people who are renewed in the thinking of our mind. Renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and in true holiness. So it's not a matter of intellect. It's a matter of calling and focus. So I'm going to plead with us, you, be focused. Number two, we, we talk about this matrix of, of desire versus intentionality. And I want you to see this, just a little graph. So if you, if you someone who you desire things, you, you wish, you wish. 
If you want to live with intentionality, you live with purpose. Not just a wish, just purpose, purposeful. Or under desire, you say, well, someday I will. If you live with intentionality, you say, man, today is the day the Lord has made. I'm going to rejoice today in what God is doing. And I'm going to seize today for the glory of God. Uh, desire, people say, is kind of a fantasy. They think, they think, they think. But intentionality people live with strategy. They, they think, I think strategically. How do I, how do I grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ? How do I grow in favor with God and man? And, and then desire people say, well, someday or somebody should do this. But, but intentionality people say, I will. I will, I'm going to make a difference. I'm really, I'll be a difference maker but for the glory of God. Number three, intentionality is difficult because of the beckoning voices that are poured into our lives. The beckoning voices. Uh, we, we have so much around us. I believe this. I believe that for some of you that are younger, that in 40 and 50 years, you know, you're going to put your grandchild on your knee or you're going to talk to your teenage grandchild and they're going to say, man, we've been studying history. Tell us what it was like before the year 2007, before everyone had the iPhone, before everyone had the internet. Of course, they'll be way beyond that. By the, but what was it like to live in the dark ages, you know? You just had this stuff at the end. The, the, the profusion of knowledge is astronomical. Now listen to me. There was a guy named Richard Swinson who's a physician who's also a futurologist. He's written books like Contentment, Balance, Margin. I read one of his books the last week of every year just because he's, it's good, just refresher. But he, he says in, in the area of knowledge and stuff, he said there's been a, a, a gradual graph up in what we know and how we live. He said until, he says about 1950 or 60, and he said about 1960 we did a hockey stick. A hockey stick. And he said, and it's not abating. His thesis, it's not slowing down. Just, just a few statistics. This is, um, this is from five years ago. So um, the average grocery store in America five years ago had 40,000 products. 40,000. I remember, I remember, I'm not that old. I, I, maybe I am. I remember when you went to the grocery store and you had Crest, Colgate, and Ultra Bright. Period. And that was just like, really? I don't know what to choose, you know, just, of course, my wife, organic. Crest, whatever that is. Um, so um, the, the, this is six years ago. An individual will check their email 50 times a day. Their instant messaging 77 times a day. And visit 40 websites per day. Think about that. The average desk worker starts something new every blank minutes. What do you think? Three. Bingo. How do you concentrate? How do you get anything done? I mean, um, some new car owner's manuals are now more than 800 pages. Think about that. I mean, I don't know. Driving the jet, Apollo 13, I don't know. But, but, but the, 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 the change is absolutely astounding. And we're living in the midst of that. So this past Christmas last week, I went home to be with my mom and my dad. And the highlight of my Christmas was having supper Christmas night with my dad has two siblings, they're both alive. So with my mom and my dad and my brother and my dad, 
uh, and uh, that, that's two siblings. And so my dad is almost 94, my mom is almost 89, my aunt is almost 91, and my uncle is almost 88. So sitting at that table, and they're all sharp. They, they, they're sharp. And sitting there at that table, there, were, there was 367 years of experience at that table, not counting the junior high team of my brother, me, and my wife. Not counting us. It's amazing. And whenever I'm with my dad, this is just an aside at Christmas. I get emotional. He gets emotional. I said, Dad, tell me about the Christmas of 1945. And he says, well, in 1945, I've been serving with the Fifth Army in Italy. And we left Naples. And there is a band playing Sentimental Journey as we left. And 11 days later, we pulled into New York Harbor on Christmas Day. And there was a tugboat with a band playing Sentimental Journey as we got there. And he said, and I looked at the Statue of Liberty and I said, oh, girl, you'll never see me again. In other words, I'm never going to go overseas again. I said, Dad, how old were you? I was 20. Oh, whoa. Two years in Europe. You're 20. So we're talking at the table, and my uncle says, you got to remember something. I remember when there were no paved roads in Yadkin County. Now, Yadkin County, I know it's, it's kind of in the country. We're 25 miles from Winston-Salem nautically and 2,000 miles from Winston-Salem culturally, but it's only 25 miles. <laughs> and, and, and then my uncle says, you got to realize before World War II, there were, there were very few homes of electricity in Yadkin County. Therefore, there were no flush toilets. You think about, think about that. A friend told me after the service, I had a good buddy whose daddy he said he went to visit him one time, and he said he had a, this big grill, and he's grilling out in the grill, and his daddy shook his head and said, people are cooking outside and going to the bathroom inside. What is this world coming to? So, I mean, the, the, the change, what I'm saying is the change is so rapid, and the information is there. And there's something in your bulletin written by a guy named C.S. Lewis, written in 1945 in a book called Mere Christianity, and, and he, he says this. He says, uh, as Christ has said, a thistle cannot produce figs. If I am a field that contains nothing but grass seed, I cannot produce wheat. Cutting the grass may keep it short, but I shall still produce grass and no wheat. If I want to produce wheat, the change must go deeper than the surface. I must be plowed up and re-sown. That is why the real problem of the Christian life comes when people do not usually look for it. It comes the very moment you wake up each morning. And here's where we pick up the quote. And the first job each morning consists simply in shoving them all back and listening to that other voice, taking that other point of view, letting that other larger, stronger, quieter life come flowing in, and so on all day long. So, so we need to hear from, from the Lord. So I'm going to go to this passage now. We're going to take again the, the 60,000-foot um, view. Um, but here's my thesis. If I am to live with intentionality, as I say the book of Ephesians, 
If I'm to live with intentionality, I must be renewed in my mind as I learn Jesus and have corresponding life action. I must, number, I must number two, know my times and know my environment. That's next week. And then thirdly, I've got to understand the vital importance of community as God made us. God made us as community people, relational people. But today, I've got to have a renewed mind and a corresponding lifestyle. So he says in verse 21 of chapter 4, this is not how you learned Jesus. He says in verse 23, you must be renewed in the spirit of your mind. My, My mind must be continually renewed by the Holy Spirit. If I'm to live the life that I'm I'm being called to live, I've got got to be changed. God is in the business of changing us. I was was thinking about... Uh, John 11. In John 11, there's this story about a man named Lazarus, and, and, and Jesus is going. Uh, here's where that Lazarus is, is sick, and, and so he delays going. He says, tells his men so that you can see the glory of God. And so uh, as he goes there, he receives word that Lazarus has died. And he says these incredible words to Lazarus' sister, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever believes in me really will never die. It's powerful. And, and so he's going on and they have this dialogue and he stands outside the tomb and he says, basically he says, Lazarus, come forth. And one of Lazarus' sisters who, who really liked to, to give instruction said, wait, wait, wait a minute. He's been dead four days. He's going to stink. Let's rethink this. No, Jesus said, Lazarus come forth. Lazarus came forth and he was bound with grave cloths. So they wrapped the body in grave cloths. And and Jesus says to those around him, he says, he says this, loose him, let him go. Loose him, let him go. Cut away the grave cloths. And as I read that, I thought, now this is kind of allegorical, but whenever I read the scripture and let the Holy Spirit change me, it is like the Lord is saying, loose him, let him go. Let him be the man he's been called to be. See, if if I learn of Christ and I have a corresponding lifestyle that we're going to look at, then I can preach Christ to the nations and to my neighbors. I, I can put it out. I was meeting with a young woman this week and she was talking about some issues, and she's in the, the building industry. And she mentioned a man in our church that's a friend, and she said this about him. And she said, my coworkers love this man. He's an elder. I said, really? She said, they have a deep respect for him. I said, why? She said, well, number one, he's cool. Number two, he does what he says. And number three, he cares for people. And then, so let's first let's kind of parse that. Cool. If you look it up in the dictionary, it means hip. This dude is not hip. I know him. He's one of the most uncool guys I know. He's just bland potatoes, that type of guy. But see, when she means that, when she says cool, she means he's authentic. He's a man of principle. Number two, he does what he says he's going to do. 
And number three, he cares for people. That's what I'm talking about. And if you live that way, you can speak Jesus to people. So a life of intentionality learns of Jesus, is empowered by the Spirit, and calls forth the power that God gives to people. Let's look at the text very quickly, just four attitudes. Number one is this. A person who is learning of Christ says in verse 25, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak truth with his neighbor, his fellow man, for we are members of one another. So I read this and I go, well, obviously at the church of Ephesus, there's a lot of political language being given out. Hey, doing, doing great. Love you, love you. Wouldn't change a thing about you. Wouldn't change a thing about you. What do you think about this? Well, what do you think about this? That's what I think about that. Uh, let's, just, let's just get along. Let's don't mess with each other. Just so. But see, when, when you come to know Jesus and you've got a standard, you look at your neighbors, your, your, co, your, your co-believers, your community group members, your friends, your, the men in your man-to-man table, the ladies in the Bible study, the people you rub shoulders with, and you say, listen, I'm to speak the truth to them because we belong to one another, because we need people who speak truth into my life because I am my brother's keeper to answer the question in the Old Testament. I am my brother's keeper. I am to, Hebrews 10 says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works as we meet together. So when you come on Sunday, part of your thing, you should be thinking, how can I stir up and encourage one another, the other people with love and good works? How can I encourage them to go deeper into the light and follow Christ more fully? How can I pray for them? Or Hebrews 3 says that See to it that, that, that no one turns away from the, the, the living God, but encourage one another day after day after day, as long as this is still called today, so that no one will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. There's a book called The Clapham Sect by a British historian named Tompkins, and it's about uh, William Wilberforce. William Wilberforce lived in the early 1800s in England. He was a member of parliament, the best friend of William Pitt, the prime minister, William Wilberforce labored for 35 years to see slavery eradicated from the British Empire. And on his last year of his life, he saw slavery wiped out in Great Britain. Not one person died. We had to fight a war where 620,000 of our finest men were killed. So William Wilberforce would meet every weekend, almost at a place called Clapham, outside of London, with other evangelicals who were influential and they would worship and pray and fast and seek God. And they said, we want to eradicate slavery and reform the manners in England. They established a society for the prevention of cruelty to animals. They, they tried to deal with the horrible scourge of prostitution in London and child labor laws and, and slavery and God used them dramatically. But in this book about the Clapham sect, the, the first paragraph is worth the whole book. Tompkins writes this, and this really struck me. He said, the story of the Clapham sect is one of very public achievements reaching across continents and far beyond their own lifetimes. But it is also a family saga. These were people for whom family and friendship were of the utmost importance. They lived in each other's spare rooms, married each other's brothers and sisters, prayed together, worked together, 
dreamed and schemed together, consoled each other, and criticized each other with ruthless honesty. And I thought, criticized each other with ruthless honesty. That we need brothers and sisters who speak the truth to us. So, so Paul says, if you want to call forth the power of the Holy Spirit, be a truth speaker in love. You're not some political animal that tells people what they want to hear. No, you speak the words of Jesus. You, you understand, Jesus says in Matthew 7, get the beam out of your eye so you can help your brother get the speck out of his eye. We all have specks and beams. Every person here has specks and beams. I do. I need brothers and sisters who help me get them out. Number two, if I'm going to call forth the power of the Holy Spirit, he says, in your anger, do not sin. Do I understand this passage? I turn it upside down and in and out. And he says, if you must be angry, don't sin. Don't let the sin go down in your anger because if you do, you give the devil an opportunity or a foothold. In, in your anger, do not sin. If you must be angry, don't sin. Uh, there are families in this church, I don't know all of them, who are known as families of anger. If you ever disrupt them, they come after you. And I tell you now, in the name of Jesus, to destroy that legacy of anger in your family. Your grandparents were angry, your parents were don't do it. There are families in this church who, whose granddad and dad were, were adulterers. Grandmom, grandmom, adulterers, and, and, and there's adultery there, and there's pornography there. In the name of Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, slay that demon in your family. There are other people here who just, they're, they're just all about me-ism and what I can do for me and me and me. And, and I tell you, I'm doing Ecclesiastes, we have the sin of creeping Epicureanism runneth amuck in this culture. Slay that demon in the name of Jesus. He's talking about here about anger. If you must be angry, do not sin, i.e., don't let the sun go down in your anger because anger that's not dealt with becomes settled and it becomes bitterness and it becomes rage and it becomes irreconcilable. And you've seen it happen and I have too, frequently. But if you're in the power of the Spirit in your life, you deal with your anger at the foot of the cross. Warren Wiersbe pastor at Moody Bible Church for years. He's written two, two volumes. You, really, you, should, you should get these. It's a two-volume work of the New Testament. It's an ongoing commentary from a, a very applicable place, and it's just, it's just good stuff. Warren Wiersbe, a wonderful man, died about five years ago. Warren Wiersbe said, uh, one day a man called to make an appointment. He came into his office, and, and the man said, Pastor Wiersbe, we've been going to church here. I want you to marry a woman that I want to marry. I want you to be efficient, be efficient. And the, the man was older. And, and we said, well, if you come in for counseling and we'll talk about it, and I'd be glad to help you out. And, and the guy says, well, I must tell you this. I want you to marry me again to that woman. He said, okay, I got to hear this. He said, we were married about 30 years ago. And two years into our marriage, we became angry and bitter and name-calling and we grew further and further apart, and we divorced. And for so the last 26 years, uh, 
we haven't been able to find anybody we really wanted to spend our lives with. And recently the Lord has worked in our hearts and I, I would like to be married to this woman the last 10 or 15 years of my life. And we've just said, wow, what a story. He said, what caused the marital breakup? He said this, I have no idea. It wasn't some hydrogen bomb. He said, just little thing, little thing, little thing, little thing. Somebody recommended a book to me months ago entitled Seven Principles for Making Marriage Work by a guy named Gottman from Seattle. It's not a Christian. It's a good little book. Uh, but one of the things it says, if, if you want to see your marriage destroyed, you have long-simmering negative thoughts that will destroy it. And he says everybody is married to somebody that has two or three faults that drives them crazy. If they dwelt on it, if you want to destroy your marriage, dwell on those thoughts. There's a great course here called Reengage, Marriage Enrichment. And I took it, Sarah and I took it to our, to our, our advantage, really. And so in, in Reengage, they deal with the attitude of how you communicate. And one of the ways that you communicate, sometimes you're an escalator. You know, you just get madder and madder and louder and louder. And some of us are married to escalators. And don't, don't, don't look and start grinning. Just that's what they do. Some of us are married to withdrawers. They withdraw. Just pull out. There were eight men in my re-engaged group. And of the eight, or nine men, of the, of the nine, eight of us were withdrawers. We just became quiet and we sulked. That's anger. That's anger. And we sulk and we think, gee, if only my wife knew how wonderful I was, she would love me more. And she'd get over it. So we do that. That's a form of anger. Listen, deal with these issues. I heard a story, and I'll say, I think it's apocryphal, not true. But there was a man who was, had, he had runaway anger issues. He would just explode and curse and call his wife names. And it went on for year after year after year. And his wife just took it. And she would just get quiet. And so after year after year after year, he got his life together. God convicted him and he was broken. And he asked his wife, can you please forgive me? Forgive me for being a man of anger who called you names and who belittled you. And she said, I can't forgive you. And he said, I got to ask you something. Whenever I exploded and acted horrifically, you wouldn't say anything. You'd get up and you'd clean the bathroom. I mean, I never understood that. She said, well, it gave me a sense of peace. And he said, why? She said, because I cleaned the commode with your toothbrush. So... <laughs> Like I said, not a true story, but just think about it. But, um, so what I'm saying is we need to deal with <laughs> deal with these issues. Number three, he says, he says, and those of you who formerly were thieves. Now, this, this church is really interesting. You've got, you've got angry people. You've got thieves. You've got people who don't tell the truth. And we're going to find out later you've got people who just speak horrifically spoiled fish language. What a church. What a church. But they've been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. He says this. He says, for those of you 
who, are, who have been thieves. Verse 26, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. In other words, Paul says, listen, when you've been touched by the grace of the Spirit through the work of Christ on the cross, you get a job and you're productive and you live as a steward and you bless people with your resources. Instead of being self-centered and being a thief or being involved in Ponzi schemes, you're involved in responsibly living a productive way so that you can bless others around you. Listen, if you want to call forth the power of the Holy Spirit in your life, you live and you work and you bless other people with your tithes. I believe in tithing, 10%. I believe that. I believe it's biblical. It gives me a place to stand. And then fourthly, he says, he says regarding your speech, he says, and let no corrupt talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear it. It's not just talking about saying bad words. It's talking about just gossiping or vilifying the character of people or being quiet when you should speak out to defend people. He says, let, let no corrupt talk come from your mouth, but only that which is helpful for building others up. But the word here for corrupt speech is, is a, the same word that's used to describe rotten fish or spoiled fruit. In Asia, especially in Asia, they have these open markets and people shop every day, basically. And so there'll be an open market under a big tin, several tin roofs or one big tin roof. And, and you'll, you'll go in and there'll be the section for the flowers and, and the aroma of fresh cut flowers hits you and you go, wow, this is really cool. And, and then the next place you go to has some spices and especially in, in India, but they'll have all these spices that just overwhelm you and you go, wow, smell that. And, and then you'll go into the, uh, the vegetable place and you good, good stuff. And, 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 and then you go into the meat section. And every day they slaughter animals in these markets. Every, every day. They slaughter them outside, skin them, bring them in, and it is fresh meat. And you go in, there's blood all over the floor. There's blood everywhere. And there's beef. And then there's some pork. And there's chicken. And then at the very end, you, you'll, you'll have something like this. You'll have the fish. It stinks. You know, it just stinks. And I've always thought, how do people live and work here five, six, and seven hours a day? Because I'm, and, th and this is fish, quite frankly, they're, they're not spoiled. I mean, imagine spoiled fish. That's what Paul says here. Let no spoiled fish speech come out of your mouth, but only that which is helpful for building others up. Proverbs 11, verse 10, the mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life. It's a fountain of life. Therefore, if I want to call forth the power of the Holy Spirit, I will watch my speech. Because it says in verse 30, don't grieve the Spirit. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. And, and so you look at this and you go, the beginning point, the ending point, is I must learn Jesus. Verses 18, verse 23. And then he says this in verse 32 of Ephesians 4. He says, 
and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God has forgiven you in Christ Jesus. I've got to learn Jesus. If I'm going to be a person who lives with a sense of calling, or with a sense of, of purpose, with a sense of intentionality, I've got to learn Jesus. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. And therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering to God. Walk in love just as Christ walked in love. Church, I've got to continuously learn Jesus. That's why this definition of been thrown out that, that we got from a book. A disciple is a forgiven sinner. You understand your justification. A forgiven sinner who is constantly learning of Jesus in repentance and faith. And he goes deeper into the light. I want to do that. I want you to do that. I want to change. So when I'm 13, when you're 13 or 33 or 63 or 83 or 93, Change. The Holy Spirit is changing us. In 2019, how do you want the Spirit of God to change you? It begins with learning Jesus. I was in John, think, think, thinking through John 9 the last few days. And John 9 is a great story. The disciples walk along with Jesus, and they pass a man who has been blind from birth. Boom, right there. Sitting right there. Begging. Begging. That's all they do is beg. And the disciples say, Lord, and this was the theological belief of that day. Lord, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he's had this horrible thing thrown on his life? And Jesus says, neither. This man was born this way so that you can see the, the glory of God. And so Jesus doesn't say to him, what do you want me to do for you? He kneels down and he spits in the clay and he makes a mud pack and he puts it on the man's eyes, and he says, go, wash, and be healed. The man goes, he washes, and he's healed. Simple. Do what Jesus says. And this was on the Sabbath, so the Pharisees got upset. He's healing on the Sabbath. You can't do that. And this man, who was an outcast who was considered a pariah, who was considered to be a lamentable man, goes from being a blind beggar to a bold witness. And he didn't really understand Jesus' Messiah at this point. But the Pharisees call him in and say, give, give glory to God. We know that this man who touched you is a sinner. And the guy says, I don't know if he's a sinner, but I don't know this. I can see now. He's, he's arguing with PhDs, and he is an unlearned, blind beggar 30 minutes ago. And they get upset with him, and they start calling him names. They call him his parents, and, and they say to him, you were born in utter sin, and you would dare to teach us. And they cast him out of the synagogue, which means he was no longer part of the nation of Israel. And Jesus finds him and says, uh, you can see. He said, yes. And he says, do you believe in the Son of Man? He said, and who is he, sir, that I can believe in him? And Jesus says, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. There's no shame. There are people here today who have been involved in bad stuff. 
There's no shame in Jesus. This is a blind beggar who is a cast out, who is considered to be a total loser by his culture, and now he's a man who's been, whose dignity has been given to him by Jesus. Jesus does it all the time. So you've got to learn of Jesus. That's what I'm saying. That, that, that's where we start, and that's where we begin, and that's where we live. So, so I'm, uh, let's show you this picture. This, this guy's an older man now, an older picture. So I, I'm, I'm doing this study, and I'm thinking, and uh, I start singing an old hymn called I'd Rather Have Jesus. Um, just kind of came out of nowhere. And then I started, I thought, well, I'm going to do some research on this hymn. And I started doing research on the hymn. Some of us older people know it. And, and here's the story. Th this story is so good. This should be a movie. It's a Hallmark movie that's true. It's powerful. And if they did this movie, Rachel McAdams should be the, the wife. I think she's so good, you know, so... Uh, I don't know who the, the man should be, but here's, here's a story. It's an amazing story. So please hear this. It's just incredible. Sweden. At one time, Sweden and Norway were one big kingdom. And during this man's life, Norway became their own nation. But Sweden and Norway were one big nation at one time. You know, the, the, two, the two nations over here, the three nations, you know, Norway, Sweden, Finland over here next to Russia. But these two guys. And so... Um, there was a man named Oscar Bernadotte who was the crown prince of Sweden. In other words, if the king died, he became king. He was the crown prince. And Oscar, Oscar Bernadotte, or Prince Bernadotte, Prince Oscar, um, um, had a sister who was a princess, and she had a very um, well-educated lady-in-waiting that attended her and taught her. And this lady's name was, was Edda, E-D, or Ebba, E-B-B-A, Ebba, Swedish. And Oscar fell in love with Ebba, went to his dad. The king says, Dad, I've, I've fallen in love with this lady in waiting, Ebba. I'd like to marry her. And her dad, his, his dad said, you can't marry her. She is a commoner. If you marry her, you will relinquish your right to royalty and to the throne. You can't marry her. He says, but I love her. And the, the dad said, I'll ask you to do this. Wait two years, and then if you're still for that way, we'll talk. Two years went by. Came to his dad. Dad, I want to marry Ebba. I love her. She was a strong believer. He was a strong believer. And, and, and his dad says, if you marry her, you will renounce your royalty. You will become a lower echelon nobleman because you married a, a commoner and you will never sit on the throne he says I know and his dad said you can marry her if you get all of your brothers to sign a, a, a statement saying they will never marry a commoner because I don't want this to happen in my family again because it created an incredible furor in the nation of Sweden and he did that the brothers signed it and so he married Ebba and at a very small ceremony with just a handful of people there, and his father totally rejected him in his married life, renounced being the king of Sweden. Uh, they were married for 58 years. They had five children, and the rest of the story, which isn't germane to this, is one of their kids became the Oscar Schindler of Sweden in World War II. He saved thousands of lives, including over 500 
uh, lives of Jewish people from the Nazi boot. So it's just a great story. Like I said, homework, but it's true. But Oscar Bernadette wrote a poem that became a hymn. Let me read it to you. Here's the guy that would be king wrote this. This is so good. I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be his than have riches, I'm told. I'd rather have Jesus than houses or lands. I'd rather be led led by his nail-pierced hand than to be the king of a vast domain or be held in sin's dread sway. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. I'd rather have Jesus than men's applause. I'd rather be faithful to his dear cause. I'd rather have Jesus than worldwide fame. I'd rather be true to his holy name. I just, I read that and I thought, wow. Wow. It's powerful. So my prayer for you as we go into 2019, that we would live with intentionality to the glory of God. Not, Not haphazardly but under the authority of Jesus and his word. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for today, and I thank you for the, the call of the Lord in our lives. You've called us unto yourself. And um, because of that, we have intentionality. We don't live haphazardly, but we live with this clear sense of purpose, to glorify you and to enjoy you and to to take your name to our neighbors and to the nations. So do that. And may our prayer be, oh Lord, may we learn of Jesus. So we bless your name today. In Jesus' name, amen.